we've been talking a lot this morning about that today is, in fact, the day that our nation celebrates its uh, Independence Day. 245 years or so, give or take a day or two, uh, our founding fathers wrote down on a piece of paper some very specific words that we would come to know as the Declaration of Independence. I want to read those words to you as we start this morning, and you'll see why, at least I hope. Here's what they wrote. The unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. And then they write, after the preamble, these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That, to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. I'm not going to read the entire declaration, but that is the beginning of it. 245 years ago, the people of this nation made a decision. They had been under the rule of King George, and they said, no longer will we acknowledge you as our king. Now, what's very striking about the Declaration of Independence, as you notice, is they declare their separation from the King of England. They did not declare their independence and autonomy as individual people. What I mean when I say that is, they knew that at the end of the day, they were still called to be governed, just not by the king of England. So they didn't say, we're throwing off King George, and we're going to go, and we're going to do our own thing, and everybody is left on their own. They said, no, no, we are substituting one king, one way of rule for another. Now, when I was preparing the message that I was going to give today, actually when I had mapped out what the summer would look like, I was not so smart or creative to think that the message I'm about to give was going to fall on July 4th, okay? But in God's uh, amazing sovereignty, the message that we have for us today, the topic of the psalm that we're going to look at today, addresses this whole idea of kingship, this whole idea of independence, this whole idea of, of having a ruler over us. You see, this summer we're going to be in the psalms. Uh, we're calling it our Summer in the Psalms. We wanted to say the P Summer in the Psalms, P-S-U, but our wives wouldn't let us. Um, <laughs> so it's just going to be the, the Summer in the Psalms, where each Sunday we're looking at a different psalm and looking at the themes that are in it. And when Martin Luther, the great theologian, talked about the Psalms, he called it the Bible in miniature. It was a mini Bible because the truths of the Psalm are the truths that you find throughout the rest of the scriptures. And one of the great truths that you find within the Psalms is this. There are two ways to live life. There are only two types of people in the world. Two weeks ago when Pastor Paul kicked off this series, he brought us to Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 started with these words. 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And, and in that very first psalm, the psalmist tells us that there is a group of people who are known as the blessed. He says, blessed is the man, blessed is the woman, who, who functions in this way. In contrast, the rest of the psalm says, there are those who are not blessed. There's only two types of people in this world. There are those who are blessed, which means those who are people who live in right relationship with God, who are connected to him and those who are not. And the question that Psalm 1 asks us is, you can know whether or not you are one of the blessed people depending upon who you listen to. That's the question that was being asked in Psalm 1. The psalm says, as the rest of the scriptures say, there's only two groups of people in the world, those who are blessed and those who are not, those who are in right relationship with God and those who are not. And depending on who you listen to will be will one sign to you and to me whether or not we are part of the blessed. When you come to Psalm 2, which is really a continuation of Psalm 1, it asks us another question that matches up perfectly with what we're celebrating today, Independence Day, and that question is, who is ruling you? Psalm 1 asks the question, who do you listen to? Psalm 1 is going to say, if you want to know whether you're blessed or not, the question you need to answer is, who is ruling you? Who's going to rule you? See, as a nation today, we celebrate our independence from one ruler, King George. But we come and we say, no, no, we're, we're still ruled. We're, we still have a government over us. Psalm 2 is going to come and say, listen, there's more to it than just having a government ruling you. There's more to it than just having a, a king over you. To, to really have the blessed life, to have the life that you were created to have, you need to know who you're listening to, and you also need to know who is ruling you. And so with that in mind, I want you to turn with me to Psalm 2. Maybe you're already there. That's great. But that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time, Psalm chapter 2. I'm going to read the entirety of the psalm. And then we're going to talk about its message and its theme. It begins, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath, those who want to throw off his bonds, and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, this is the Lord speaking, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, now this is the one who has been established as king. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen? Amen. As you come to Psalm 2, there is a question being asked. The question is, who is going to rule you? And the reason why I say that this is the question being asked by Psalm 2, the question being asked to help us evaluate, are we going to experience the life of blessing, the life that we were created to have in God, the life that was illustrated for us in Psalm 1? The reason why I say that that is the question is because in the smack dab middle of Psalm 2, 
there's a proclamation that is being made. Did you see the proclamation that is made? It, it stands out. The Lord speaks. He speaks and he says these words. I have, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He is saying this in response to what has been said previously about people wanting to throw off his reign, throw off his rule. He says, I have set my king in Zion, my holy hill. What's the proclamation being made here? The proclamation being made in Psalm 2 is this. God has established a ruler over everyone and everything. This is a foundational truth, not just of Psalm 2, but of the entire scriptures. The creator God is coming in this chapter, and he is making us aware of something that should be evident, but it's this. As the creator, he did not create this world like a top, get it spinning, and then walk away. No, he created the world, he created you, and he created me and everything in it in such a way that he would ordain and establish a ruler over all things. This world was not intended to be perceived as a world in chaos, but a world that has a ruler over it. He comes, he says in verse 6, and and says, I have established, I have come and placed my king over all. In fact, We see from verse 2 that the psalmist says even the kings of the earth begrudgingly acknowledge that truth. They say, the kings of the earth, they take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. And here's what they say. They come in verse 3. We're going to look at verse 3. There it is. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The kings of the earth, they don't deny that there is a ruler over everything. They say, we just don't want him. Did you see that? So, So, Church, as a church, we acknowledge that God not just simply created the world, but he has established a ruler over everyone and over everything. Now, a very simple question that I need to ask at the moment is, did you know that? (laughs) Did you know that there is a ruler over everyone and everything? That this world is not just a world made up of happenstance and that we are free and autonomous beings to do whatever we want and to decide what is right and what is best for us. No, instead, God has established. It's why Psalm 1 said, who are you listening to? Blessed is the man who doesn't listen to the wicked but instead listens to the word of God. And who is the one who proclaims to us that word? It is none other than God's ruler. Now, as I thought about it this week, if you hold this statement to be true, that God has the right and has established a ruler over everyone and everything. If this is true, and it is, then it means something for every single person sitting here today. Something that when I say it, for some of you, you might have kind of a visceral response to. Some of you might think, oh, that doesn't sit right for me, but it is something that all of Scripture proclaims. You see, if God has set a ruler over everyone and everything, It means this for us here today. We were made to live under a ruler. See, if the creator says, I have established a ruler over all of you, then it means that you and I were made to live under a ruler. We were all made, to put it another way, to have a king. To put it even another way, you were created to have someone be the boss of your life. Now, when I say it that way, that's when it starts to get a little bit like, you ain't the boss of me. We've talked about that. I've said that in the past. 
But if God has done this, then it means this. We were made to live under a ruler. That is part of God's plan. Uh, a number of years ago, there was a superhero movie, a Marvel movie called The Avengers that came out. And there's this one scene in the movie where the primary villain of that movie, a character by the name of Loki, is come down to earth and he's exercising power and he's freaking out a group of people. And, and so they're all petrified of him as he's demonstrating his power. And he says something to this group of people. He, he calls them to kneel before him. And, and in this scene, I couldn't believe it, the writers of this Marvel movie actually knock it out of the park with biblical theology, which is, which is shocking. I don't even think they knew what they were doing. In fact, I know they didn't know what they were doing because they intended a different result from what I'm about to tell you. Everyone's kneeling before Loki, this god of mischief in the movie, and he says these words. This is so profoundly accurate. As they're kneeling, he says, Is not this simpler is not this your natural state? It's the unspoken truth of humanity. You were made to be ruled. In the end, you will always kneel. I'm like, oh my, look at that. <laughs> look at that. The Marvel writers actually got something right, theologically speaking, although they intended it in a different way. Because as Loki's making that proclamation, this is your natural state, isn't it? You, you were bred for subjugation. You're supposed to kneel. He literally says you were made to be ruled. And you hear that in the movie, and you're supposed to say, no, we're not. You're not the boss of me. In fact, one person rises and basically says that. And then Captain America comes in and saves him. Anyway, <laughs> he makes this statement, but Loki is actually saying what the Bible proclaims. We were actually made to be ruled. We were created by our God not to serve ourselves, not to live for ourselves, not to decide for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. Psalm 2 says, and the rest of the scriptures proclaim, we were made to have a king. We were made to have a king. And I found that intuitively, we as human beings, we actually know this to be true. And it's fascinating that when you look back through the annals of history, when you look at the stories that humanity has told for centuries, we actually support this claim. When you look back through all the stories that are told throughout history, we have these, uh, uh, the Arthurian legends, the, the legends of King Arthur, uh, about how King Arthur is the king who comes with Camelot, and when the good king is on his throne, all goes well, and that's what we long for. In fact, one of the statements in, in King Arthur on his tombstones, it says, the once and future king of England. It means that this is the king that you ultimately want, but it's not just the Arthurian legends that come and, and say that. We, we see this, this extrapolated with the stories of Robin Hood, right? When, when the bad king is on the throne because the good king is away, Robin Hood has to, to jump in and kind of save the day, and they long to get the good king back on his throne, and then everything will be made right. And then you read the stories of, of Tolkien, who talks about the, when the king returns into the land, everything will be good. And Lewis, C.S. Lewis writes about Narnia, and when the good king is in his place, everything is right. We're, we, we have in our literature all these stories about how if we could just have the right ruler, everything would be good. But it's not just simply in our fiction, it's in our day-to-day -day lives as well. 
And now in, in Valley Center, we don't function like this too much because we like our independence. But in other parts of the country, you'll see people talking about, oh, we need the government. If we have the right president in place, if we have the right person here, everything will be good. We just need the right rulers. We need the right leaders. And so if we just had the right infectious disease specialist telling us what to do, then all will go well. If we just follow the right billionaire, and, you know, look at what he's doing over here, the right therapist in my life. We're always looking to people outside of ourselves to say, if I can get their help, if they can just do X, Y, or Z, things will go well. Listen, whether we want to admit it or not, we function in a way that we understand that we were made to be ruled. A lot of people have talked about in recent years, like, why were the superhero movies recently, why has this become such a moneymaker and such a big thing? Because at the heart of it, superheroes are people coming from outside of ourselves to make right what we can't. We were made to live under a ruler. That's what Psalm 2 says when it declares that God has placed his king on his holy mountain. But if you notice, this psalm just simply doesn't come and tell us that God has established this ruler over everyone and everything. He tells us exactly who this ruler is. Because there's a very specific ruler that we were made to live under. Do you see it here in verse 7? He says, I will declare, or I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. There's this interaction between the one whom God has established as king, and, and that king himself. And when God speaks to that king, did you see who he calls him? God comes and speaks to this king, and the first thing he tells to him is, you are my son. This ruler that God has made to rule over everyone and everything is God's son. Which church, if you were a Hebrew back then hearing this, it would have blown your mind. God has a son? How's that possible? In this monotheistic religion, they didn't have a category for this. And so what the ancient Hebrews used to do is they believed that this psalm was ultimately like a coronation psalm. That metaphorically speaking, God is talking here about earthly kings. And that earthly kings are representative of, of being like God's son. And, and, and so when you, they would read Psalm 2, they would often apply it to the earthly kings of, of Israel because ultimately, they didn't have a category for this idea that, that God would have a, a son. And in many ways, the kings of Israel did function in that way. They functioned as God's sons in a representative sense. But ultimately, here's the truly incredible thing. We know that this psalm wasn't written just as a coronation psalm for earthly kings. We know that there is a very specific son that is mentioned here. And we know who that son is because on this side of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we know that this psalm is about none other than Jesus himself. You see, the ruler who is God's son is Jesus Christ. This is so profound. God the Father does, in fact, have an eternal son. And it's none other than Christ himself. And some people, they read that word begotten and they think that it's referring to that, that Jesus Christ was made. No, it was today when God says to the sons, they have begotten you. He's, he's making the proclamation on that day before these kings. This is my son. You might not recognize it, but I'm making you know and I'm making everyone know. This is my eternal son. Peter would preach in Acts chapter 4. 
This is a profound statement. He would apply this scripture to Jesus Christ himself. In Acts 4.25, he says, David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? He's coming in and he's saying, listen, David knew that he wasn't writing about himself. Verse 26, the kings of the earth, he's quoting Psalm 2, set themselves and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. He's coming in this sermon, and he's applying Psalm 2 to Jesus himself. He's saying, this psalm specifically is speaking of Jesus Christ. That is the Son who is mentioned here. The author of Hebrews would say the same thing. In Hebrews 1.5, he says, For To which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son? Today I have begotten you. In the context, he's talking about Jesus. He's saying, no, no one else did God talk about in this way. No one else did he call his son other than Jesus. And in Hebrews 5, 5 we read, So also did Christ, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. All these scriptures of the New Testament say when you read Psalm 2, that's not a metaphorical son. That's not a king of Israel from way back then. That is the king of Israel and the king of all kings. It's Jesus Christ who's being talked about. That is the one that we were made to live under. That's the ruler whom God has established. This is the king. This is who he is. And then the psalm ends in verse 12 by telling us something very, very specific. It says this, blessed are all who take refuge in him. God has made his son Jesus Christ ruler over everyone and everything, and those who accept the son find blessing. God's son is Jesus Christ, and acceptance of God's son leads you to blessing. Remember how I started by, by saying, Psalm 1 asked the question, who are you listening to? Psalm 2 comes and says, who is ruling you? Acceptance of God's Son is what leads to blessing. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. The implications we're going to see in just a minute is if you don't take refuge in Him, if, if there's no acceptance of Him as your King, well, there's going to be something far more devastating in your life. But I love how this psalm ends by saying, this is it, man. Here you go. God has a king. He's a ruler over everything. It's his son. Accept him. That's where you find the blessed life. So it's easy. We could just end here and we could say, this is the beauty of it. Accept God's son. Know his blessing. But church, and for those of you that might be visiting, there's a problem that's also drawn out in this text. Because it's not as just simple as saying, well, there he is. There's the son. The text tells us something else. The text tells us that we have a problem. And that problem is this. We do not want God's son to rule us. Every single person who lives has a nature that is at enmity and against God, who says, I know that there's a king, but I don't want him as king. And that is illustrated by what happens in verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from 
us. The psalmist calls it like he sees it. And he says, there's a problem to you and I experience the blessed life. The problem is human beings don't like the idea of God as their ruler. They don't have a problem with kings in general. They just don't want God as their ruler. In fact, this plays out even today. You talk to anybody who does surveys, uh, sociological surveys, and you'll discover that even today, even in America and around the world, most people don't have any problem believing that there is a God. Most human beings believe that a God actually exists. Most people would identify themselves as being spiritual. There's very few people who are just straight-up atheists. Now, they exist in the world. I don't deny that. But most people are like, yeah, I can deal with a God existing. In fact, look at these guys. Look at these kings. Do they deny that God exists? That's not their problem. They actually acknowledge that God exists. It's just they don't want him as their what? Ruler. The same is true today, is it not? I'll take God, but I will take him on my terms. And if you try to put a God on me that starts telling me what to do and how to live, well, we function like this. We throw off the bonds. We don't want him. And that's what the king's problem is. They say, we acknowledge there's a God. We just don't want him as our ruler. Now, that's in the Old Testament. Romans chapter 1 tells us it's been that way from the beginning. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed against, or from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For although they knew God, verse 21 says, they did not honor him as God. So they know that there's a God, but they don't honor him as God, as the ruler, as the one over everything, or give thanks to him. That's humanity's problem. That's our problem. We don't want God as ruler over us. And as the text goes on to say, the problem with that, the problem with rejection of God's Son is that it leads to your destruction. Did you see that part in the text? Rejection of God's Son leads to destruction. I started by saying there's only two ways to live. There's only two experiences you will have, either one as those who are blessed or one as those who are not. And it's not just that the non-blessed life is just not, you know, happy-go-lucky. It's the fact that it's a life of destruction. Look at what it says here in the text. Verse 9, God's son who's the ruler over everyone and everything, he's given a twofold responsibility by God to care for and to serve as a refuge for his people but also to punish rebels. Verse 9 says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Those who rebel against the Son, the Son says, I'm to care for my people and they are to receive my blessing. But if you get outside of my reign and my rule, this is the result. I am charged by the Father with treating judgment upon the sinner in this way. In fact, verse 12 says it, Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. There's only death and destruction found outside the rule of God's son. There's no hope. There's only death to be found here. This is the contrast that's created. Accept the son, blessed life. Reject the son, destruction. It's why, church family, the entire psalm starts with a question. Because the psalmist knows everything that I've just told you to be true. Blessed is the one who submits to the Son. 
Cursed is the one, and destruction awaits those who do not. Because the psalmist knows that, he starts the whole psalm with this question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? It's an absolute insane thing in the eyes of the psalmist that people would know that there is a God who has established his son as ruler and that that would lead to the blessed life to submit to that ruler, but to not do so to lead to destruction. And so the psalmist says, so why do they do this? Why, why would any of us do this if the outcome is destruction? In fact, verse 4 it tells us what God's response is to all of it himself when he sees people trying to act as rebels against him. It says, he who sits in the heavens, who's that? That's God. He laughs. It's the only time in the entire Bible where we're told that God actually laughs. And what's he laughing about? I don't think he's going, oh, look at them. I think, he's, I think it's, like, it's like I have my little two-year-old nephew it's like if, if he were to come up here on the stage and, and he's like, I'm going to get you, Uncle Dave. I, you know, and I'm like, he's not going to take me over. And he starts hitting on my legs. What do I do when he starts doing that? I'm, la I'm laughing. I'm like, tickle, 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 you know, because I'm like, he's not going to take me down. God's up in heaven. He's like, why are they doing? It says that he holds them in derision, which means literally he, he holds them to be in ridicule. He's like, this is pathetic what you're doing. That's God's response to all of this. And so the psalmist writes, why? Why do they do this? Church, God has a ruler. It is his son. We were made to be ruled by him. To accept him is blessed life. To reject him is destruction. The problem is we don't want him to rule over us. And so what is to be done? You see, this text doesn't just come to us and say, here's the truth, here's the problem. It also offers the solution. We're supposed to be ruled in our natural state. We don't want God to rule us, so what are we to do? I close with verses 10 through 12. As I read these passages this week, it, it didn't hit me the first time, second time, or even the third time, but then I saw something so amazing in this text, something that's so helpful, something that's so hopeful. Look at verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, pay attention to that. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I don't know if you caught it. I don't know if you saw it. But in this text right here and in verse 10, we are told that the God who rules over all and has established his son as our ruler is a gracious, merciful, and loving God. And do you know how we know that? Because we've just been told about these kings who are in rebellion against God, who have verbalized that they don't want him as their ruler. And at the very end of the psalm, God addresses the kings who have basically spit in his face and says, we don't want you or your son. And he comes to them. And he says to them, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned. God graciously and mercifully comes to these kings and says, there's still time and there's still the ability for you to enter into the blessed life. Did you see that? 
He doesn't just say, your end is nigh, I'm done with you. He comes and he says, there is hope for you. Here is how you can turn things around. Here is how you can avoid the destruction that the son has for those who reject him. He comes and he gives them a warning. He calls them to be wise. He invites them in. This is what God our Father is like. Always offering grace and mercy to the undeserving. And what does he tell them? He says, as long as you still have breath in your lungs, you can do what's necessary. And the very first thing that adds to the solution, how can we enter into that life, he says, is accept the Son. Accept the Son. This isn't just the message here. This is the message throughout the entirety of the Scriptures. Jesus Christ came and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one enters into eternal life except through me. You want that life. You want that blessing. Just accept me. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Confess with your mouth, Paul says, that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. Accept the Son. What that looks like is acknowledging that you actually need a ruler. I love what Pastor Jason prayed earlier God bless our country and the freedom that we have, but the independence that we have as a nation all ultimately sometimes enters into our lives individually, and we think we're independent. And we need to come and say, no, I'm not independent. I'm dependent upon someone. I need someone to rule me. And the only one who can rule me is not me. It's not you. It's, not, it's only your son. And so we have to denounce all other kings. To accept the son is to denounce all other kings, to admit that you need that ruler. And so I'm, I'm not going to assume for, for one moment, although my parents told me not to assume, but I'm not going to assume for one moment that as I look out at a group like this, that there are some people who haven't done this very first thing, that there were some that when I was talking earlier about you needing a ruler over you, you were bristling and you were saying, no one's the boss of me. But maybe now, as you've heard what I've said, maybe your heart is changing and say, no, I get it. I know, what it's, I know what you're getting at here. I do need someone. I'm coming to you today and I'm saying the first step is would you acknowledge the son? Would you accept the one that God has provided as ruler over everyone and everything? Would you denounce that that's the step towards salvation? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that you would be saved. This is your only hope. This is my only hope is in the son. Accept him as the king over all things. Would you do that today? If you have, if you have, and I know for my church family that you're saying, I, I've done that, well then, then there are two things that will manifest in your life as an acknowledgement of your acceptance of the Son. Two things that the psalmist says you will see as fruit of your acceptance of the Son as your King. The first is this, worship of the Son. You will worship the Son. That's the solution. Worship the Son. And you know where we get this from? Where, where do we get the idea that, that those who accept the Son worship the Son? It's verse 12. In the first three words, it says, kiss the Son. Did you see that? I always love that. I remember studying this passage when I was in college. Kiss the Son. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. That idea of kiss the Son, it's kind of a funky thing. It's kind of a weird thing, but we've seen it in movies, right? You've seen the guy come up and kiss the ring of the king or kiss the feet of the king or sometimes come up and you know, kiss the king. It, it's, it's something that was done in the ancient world. It was a demonstration of when I came to the one who, who I believed was the ruler, the one who had the power, I, I kissed them as a way of me humbling myself. That's ultimately what's being talked about here. Kiss the Son. 
Humble yourself. Worship him. By kissing the son, he's saying, you are to make much of, of him. Those who accept the son, who know him for who he really is, you can't help but worship him. You can't help but come and say, not only as Paul says in Colossians, that he is preeminent over all things, and that alone should make you want to worship him because God has exalted him above everything. But the fact that he is the king who sacrificed his life for you, who exercised his power not to oppress but to deliver. That's the kind of king that you have. And so I was thinking this week, though, it's like worship the Son. Great, great. Conceptually, I can say those words, but what does it actually look like in the year 2021? And what does it really look like to worship Christ in this day and age? Like, how do I know? Is it is that we come on Sunday and sing songs of praise? You know, I didn't say this the first hour, but I'm going to say it to you, and, and, and I think it's so important. I wish I would remember to say, say this. You know, it is part of our worship to sing songs of praise. You know, singing praise to somebody else can be absolutely embarrassing. I mean, if I asked most of you to come up on the stage right now and sing your favorite song, you would probably run out of here screaming rather than come up here and do it. Some of you are like, I'm all game. But most people, to sing and praise somebody else, it's humbling. So do you know why we sing? Is to remind ourselves that life isn't about us. And it's to proclaim to the person next to you with your lips, yeah, I'm actually doing this. I'm singing. I don't sing anywhere else except maybe in the car, but I'm singing right now to God because, because he's worthy of it. There's only one person that you should sing songs about. I mean, really, at the end of the day. I mean, you can sing songs about your loved one, whatever. But <laughs> ask Pastor Paul about all the songs he used to write. Anyway, that's another story. But we sing songs about those who are worthy of praise, and our God is worthy of praise. But here's, here's the litmus test for you and me to know whether or not worship of the Son is really what our lives are about. Do you conform your life around the Son and what He desires, or do you make your worship of the Son conform around your life? Are you following me? Because you can say, I accept the Son all day long, but do you worship Him? Is he at the center of it? Are your priorities set with the use of your money, with the use of your time, with the use of your speech around making much of the sun or about making sure that your life is secure as humanly possible? When was the last time that you did something that made you humble yourself before the sun? What would an act of humility look like, an act in your life or my life that would say, he is more valuable, he is of greater importance than X, Y, or Z. That phrase, kiss the sun, I pray that it would ring in your ears. I pray that you would just struggle over it to say, what will it really look like for me to demonstrate that I believe that to be true? Would your kids, would your grandkids look at you and say, yeah, worship of the sun is what is preeminent in my parents and my grandparents' lives? Kiss the sun. Worship is a demonstration. And then the final thing is this, obedience. Obedience. It's the manifestation of our worship and acceptance of the sun is obedience. 
He comes and he says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. To take refuge in the son is to not trust in my ways, but to trust in his ways, to come to him. And the place where he says to take refuge is in his word. Does your life manifest obedience to the son? Jesus can't just be a good teacher. If I've said it once, I've said it a million times. He must be your king. And what he says in his word is what we desire to do. Do not just simply praise God with your lips on Sunday and then curse your neighbor when you go out those, this, well, out these doors, we'll call it. You know, I kind of love that there aren't really like walls here because it's kind of like letting you know that this is your life. It's not like you're here and then you're out there. We're always in the presence of our king. And we are to walk in ongoing obedience to him. As I've said once, I've said it again a million times, if you love me, you will obey my commands. That's what Jesus said. You worship me, you accept me, you walk in my ways. Church, today is Independence Day for our nation. It's the day when we as the people of this nation celebrate the fact that we were freed from King George, that we no longer recognized him. We were declaring our independence. But here's my prayer for Valley Center Community Church, that as we celebrate Independence Day, that every Sunday, though, for us, is Dependence Day. It's the day when we gather as the people of God and saying we are not our own, we are not autonomous, we are not the rulers of our own lives. Today is our day where we proclaim we are dependent upon the King who reigns over all, and His name is Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, these things are true, but they are hard because our natures are bent in on ourselves. And while, Lord, every person, saved or unsaved, has this acknowledgement of you as the God over all things, the battle in our flesh is to continue turning away from that truth and to say, no, we are our own. But no, you come and you say, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. Our king is the great king. Our king is your son, the one who loved us and gave himself for us so that we wouldn't be independent, as Pastor Jason said earlier, but that we would be free, free from the bondage of sin, free to live in the blessed life that is ours. So, Lord, for every person here today, my prayer is that when they hear the question, who is going to rule you, that we would say, not just this morning, but tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then coming again Sunday, Jesus will rule me. He is my king. And so to him be the praise and the glory now and forever. And all God's people said, amen.